Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Tamara Leach is behind bars yet again, and this is supposed to make us more confident in the justice system, plus a look at the UCP leadership race and Alberta politics. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is Monday, July 11th, 2022. Hope you are all having a wonderful day. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. To all the Orangemen out there, I hope you are getting ready for a happy 12th. If you don't know what I'm talking about, well, don't worry about it. But uh, the ones who know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we've got a little bit of an Alberta-focused show coming up, at least the latter half of it. We'll talk to Rachel Emanuel, who is the new Alberta correspondent for True North. And we'll also have my sit-down interview with Gwyn Morgan, former formerly of Encana, that we recorded a little while back, but it's certainly timely now as we talk about putting Western issues on the national agenda and on this show's agenda. But I want to start off by talking about the decision that came down in an Ottawa courtroom on Friday about Tamara Leach, the Freedom Convoy organizer and fundraiser, who, as I record this and as you hear this, more than likely, is still languishing behind bars in Ottawa after being arrested for allegedly breaching her bail conditions at the George Jonas Freedom Awards dinner in Toronto a little under a month ago. When Tamara Leach was rearrested, I spoke about it on this show with Keith Wilson, who is actually the lead counsel for the Freedom Convoy in a number of its cases. He's not representing Tamara Leach in criminal court, but he's very tightly connected to the legal team that is representing Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and the convoy and its fight against all of these other suits against everyone and defending them and all of that. It's a very complex matter. And one of the things that he said on my show, I think a couple of times, is that Tamara Leach is living under bail conditions that would make Vladimir Putin uh, giddy and envious. These are conditions that effectively, actually not even effectively, I don't want to qualify it. These are conditions that gag her. They prevent her from speaking about the convoy, about COVID mandates. They prevent her from using social media. And they are undeniably broad. We, we've talked about the wording of these conditions. You can't do anything remotely that supports the Freedom Convoy or that protests COVID mandates and the other conditions that she cannot have communication or contact with a number of people, including notably in this case, Tom Barrazzo. And Keith Wilson spoke with me, I believe it was the day after Tamara Leach's arrest. I, it might have actually been the night of, but I, I think it was the day after Tamara Leach's arrest that I spoke with Keith Wilson. And at the time, the information that he had was that it was involving this photo that you can see up there of Tamara Leach with Tom Morazzo at the George Jonas Freedom Awards dinner. And that photo, again, undeniably shows her and Tom with arms around each other. And the whole point of this was that the Crown said, this is where she's wrong. She can't have contact or communication with them. The photo is definitive proof. So they had her arrested in Medicine Hat and then had her shipped off to Ottawa, where she is still behind bars now. And the defense of this was that there's a caveat in that condition. And you can see the conditions up on the screen there, that she can't have contact except through counsel or in the presence of counsel. So the key question was, does the fact that counsel was in the room, because this was an event put on by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, does that negate that or, or does it activate that condition? It, does that mean it's in the presence of counsel? 
And that was really what this case was about. And, and they also argued her defense that any contact she had was minimal. And that the law is really supposed to take into account the context of it. And there's no evidence that they spoke from literally more than three seconds. There was a video clip of a three-second interaction in which Tamara Leach whispered something to Tom. And the whole exchange was, again, under three seconds. So they argued that any contact was absolutely minuscule. Which, I mean, I don't think is the strongest argument. But that was what they went for. So... Long story short, Tamara Leach is behind bars because the justice of the peace, now not a real judge, but the justice of the peace said that this was absolutely laughable. He, he basically laughed Tamara Leach's defense out of the courtroom. But regardless of what you think of the bail conditions, regardless of how you interpret it and do the Zapruder film-like analysis of the video and, oh, was there a second grab? Was there a second Tamara Leach? Was there a second Tomarazzo? You never know. What the Justice of the Peace said here is that it would, and I, I'm focusing in on the key takeaway here, it would undermine public confidence in the justice system if Tamara Leach were to be released from jail. So he says that the administration of justice, which again, public confidence in is a part of the legal system, but the administration of justice, public confidence in the administration of justice requires that Tamara Leach remain behind bars. Does anyone in this country believe that this woman belongs behind bars? And I'm when I say anyone, I'm not talking about the punitive little trolls that just want to up, jump up and down and, and throw, lock her up and throw away the key because they didn't like the truckers and they didn't like the Freedom Convoy. But I'm talking about anyone looking at this grandmother from Medicine Hat. Does anyone look at her and think that the public is well served by her being behind bars? Because when I looked at the judge, and I watched the Justice of the Peace deliver his decisions, and he went all over the map, and I'll bring up a couple of key points here that I thought were relevant. He talked about the resurgence of Freedom Convoy protests. So people that have come up and gone to protest in Ottawa, people that have gotten together at Freedom Rallies, many of them, by the way, aren't even protests. They're better described as just you know, fun fairs where people want to just get together and hang out with the people they met in Ottawa back in the cold when the weather's a bit nicer. And he said that the fact that these things are going on means that she still poses a risk to the public because she could just at any point start organizing another convoy. That's what he said. So all of these little protests, they're all a powder keg. Tamara Leach could come, she could get out of jail, she could crack her knuckles, she could get behind a truck, and she could start commanding them all to Ottawa. And before you know, we're right back where we were in February of 2022. And I'm sure a lot of you are probably wanting to go back there, so maybe that's not the, the worst idea in the world to you. But the, the Justice of the Peace thinks that this woman who went back to her life, went back to her job, did nothing remotely public until she accepted this award, which, by the way, the court knew about and effectively okayed when it came up at a previous bail hearing, they think that she is itching to organize another convoy, to organize another protest, and that she poses, to use his words, poses a risk to the public. So I think that when we look at the takeaway here, that we are supposed to, as a country, feel safer, we are supposed to feel like our justice system is functioning because Tamara Leach is behind bars. I wonder what on earth we are supposed to take away from that that is not actually itself undermining confidence in the justice system. And people have said part of civil disobedience is taking the punishment. 
If Tamara Leach was trying to flout the rules, if she was trying to make a point, okay, this means that she has to spend her time behind bars. That is part of her protest. Okay, if that's what you think, fine. And there are a lot of people who are on her side right now that are saying she doesn't belong in jail, she doesn't belong behind bars, that are probably ostensibly tough-on-crime, law-and-order conservatives, people who, under other circumstances, have said, yeah, it's important we lock up offenders and, and do that. And, and admittedly, it's tempting. If you hate the convoy, if you hate the truckers, if you hate those who are protesting against vaccine mandates, you hate the unvaccinated, all these things that Justin Trudeau has himself sowed in society, if you're one of those people that just has contempt for everything the convoy stood for, yeah, of course you want her locked up. But ideally, jail is not used just to make you feel giddy about someone else's suffering. Jail is supposed to be about locking up people who have done things so heinous they deserve to be punished, or locking up people who are likely to continue to break the law. And that is the key question here. I, I don't actually think, I have seen no evidence that she is wanting to even have another protest. The sense that I've gotten is that she made her point, she took a stand, she had been, by the court's own admission, dutifully complying with her conditions, her surety was even inspecting her phone. Her surety was doing all the things that a surety is supposed to do, making sure she wasn't violating these conditions. Now, look, I, I think that if you are trying to make the point that you are following all your conditions, this photo was a very dumb idea. And, and this is something that I, I would say, you, you can think the condition is unreasonable, but ultimately you're having to then start a debate over semantics. It would have been a lot easier to say, yes, Tom Arazzo was there, but I didn't have contact with him, than say, well, yes, we had, yeah, we were in the photo, yeah, we were together, but, but our lawyers were in the room. And uh, interestingly enough, the Justice of the Peace said that Tamara Leach's defense offered no evidence that lawyers were actually present, no evidence that she was in the presence of counsel. Now, I was at that event. I know her lawyers were all over the place. It was crawling with lawyers. But that is a... a very poor defense if they didn't provide evidence of that, provide affidavits from the many lawyers that were there, provide photos of the lawyers there, the lawyers at the table. Like, like that seems like very bad defense work if they didn't make that point. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I could be missing something here, but that seemed like a very easy hurdle to overcome in this case, especially if that is a big part of what the case rests on. So Tamara Leach has another hearing this week. She may be released, she may not be. But ultimately, what the Justice of the Peace said is that she needs to go to trial for the bail charge, the charge of breaching her bail conditions, and then she also has to go to trial for the initial charge that had her arrested and locked up in Ottawa. And this woman whose crime, in I mean, to use the government's words, whose crime was mischief, obstruction, counseling mischief, all stemming from a protest, which at this point has never had its legality assessed. People break the law all the time in forms of protest. And I've been very critical of that, especially when it comes to the blockading of critical infrastructure. The thing, and, and you can learn about this at the risk of shamelessly plugging my book, but my book, which is normally behind me here, so you'll have to settle for me putting it up on the screen, The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World, it actually talks about the efforts that convoy organizers went to to minimize the disruption of the convoy. So people like to focus in on what was happening in Windsor and Emerson and Coots, Alberta, but that was not a part of what was happening in Ottawa, except insofar as the people there were inspired by what they saw happening in Ottawa. But all of these things that we saw happening in Ottawa 
were in many respects trying to be mitigating as far as their effect on the city around them. And there were steps that were underway and quite far along actually to work with the city of Ottawa at the time that the Emergencies Act came, at the time that crackdown came. And I'm not going to give away too much of the book except to say you should read it to understand why all of the justifications the government uses to talk about how terrible this is, how insurrectiony it was, how Haiti hateful it was, that all of these things really fail to, to, to pass the smell test. And even this new information that was unearthed as though it was like the smoking gun in the bail hearing for Tamara Leach was this text message they found in evidence that they got from, I mean evidence, that they got from Chris Barber's phone, I think it was. And there was a, a text message that Tamara Leach sent where she had said, uh, you know what, uh, I just heard that there's a plan to gridlock the city. I don't want to make a decision about this on my own. The Justice of the Peace took from that just a, a few texts of an exchange that Tamara Leach was a ringleader sitting down, a mastermind with a plan to gridlock the whole city. And, I mean, the, the real story of the convoy was that these organizers couldn't really tell people to do anything. That was the power of the grassroots momentum. People in the trucks were making their own decisions. They were certainly influenced by what the leaders and so-called organizers were saying. They had the ability to set the tone. They controlled aspects of the money. But the trucks were going to do what the trucks were going to do. So the idea that that text message proves anything, I think, is laughable. But if you've already decided your outcome, which is that Tamara Leach is public enemy number one, and that's certainly what the Crown has done, everything else just gets filtered through that lens. And that was apparent by the fact that she is still quite shamefully behind bars. And, and Pat King, I talked about a few weeks ago, I have no time for Pat King. I think he does more harm than good. I have little respect for him or his voice. But the fact that he is behind bars right now is also a gross injustice with no explanation for why and no timeline for it. He hasn't even gotten the Chris Barber treatment of just being able to get released. And even Tamara Lee, she got released at least at first, although it took about 19 days, I think, the first time around. And now she winds up exactly where she started. So uh, we'll, we'll keep following this. Obviously, this week she's back in court and maybe out again. But at this point, I am not optimistic. We've got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk about Alberta politics with our new Alberta correspondent, Rachel Emanuel. Stay tuned. tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show. When the Ontario election was going on, I got all these uh, angry messages, not angry, but uh, pointed messages from people in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and parts of BC saying, oh, you're focused too much on Ontario. And when I've talked about Alberta and Saskatchewan in the past, I get the messages from the Ontarians saying, you're, you're focused too much on the West. So we, I, to be honest, the Maritimers, you guys have a right to uh, be aggrieved right now because I don't spend nearly enough time talking about what's going on in the Maritimes and also in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, we'll get to you if stuff starts happening there. But uh, one thing I do want to start talking about a little bit, though, because we have the United Conservative Party leadership race, is what's happening there in the bid to not just replace Jason Kenney as UCP leader, but whoever wins this race will become Premier of Alberta. A lot like what's happening in the UK right now, where whoever wins the Tory leadership race gets right to the top spot and becomes Prime Minister. So let's talk about this and some of the other broad issues here. Joining me is Rachel Emanuel, who is True North's new Alberta correspondent. Rachel, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show today and welcome aboard. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Happy to be on the show and happy to be with True North. I know we've had some conversations about me maybe joining the team a couple of times, so it's great to be here at last. I'm really excited about it. And just as a wee bit of Rachel Emanuel trivia, you were there like five seconds before I was pepper sprayed in Ottawa covering the Freedom Convoy. I ran into you in front of the Shadow Laurier. You uh, had the wherewithal to get out of Dodge. I was pepper sprayed moments later. I don't blame you for it, but you were there at the the moment it happened, or at least just before. So uh, good to see you while I actually have vision in both eyes right now. Um let, let's start off with what's been happening in Alberta politics generally, because we, we have Jason Kenney, who effectively lost his leadership review, and very quickly, a huge leadership race coming. It's wide open. You've got all these ex-cabinet ministers that are coming in. Is there, at this point, a theme or a thing that this leadership race is about? I think that that depends on who you are as a voter and what you're looking for in the next leader. I think we're seeing two big questions as what always happens in a leadership race. You have a camp of people who are really just thinking who can win a general election. And so I think what we're seeing with a lot of people that are coming out of Kenny's government, they're saying with some of the other candidates and, you know, from their campaigns, I'm hearing concern that maybe candidates like Danielle Smith or Todd Lowen doesn't have what it takes to win a general election because they are a bit further to the right than some of the candidates that are coming out of Kenny's government. So that's, of course, a question that everyone's asking. Another question is, of course, you know, a lot of people are really unhappy with what the Kenny government did on COVID-19 and the policies that were implemented. Of course, pastors here in Alberta were arrested during the pandemic. That is not something the province is ready to forget anytime soon. So we're really seeing those two themes emerge. And I think everyone is kind of saying, you know, Kenny didn't do enough with the federal government and get a fair deal from Ottawa. We didn't see the action on that that we were hoping for. So I think one of the big questions is who's someone that can win in a general election. Of course, the province has a general election coming up next year, just about six months after their leadership race. So that's really not a lot of time. So they're looking for somebody who can, you know, reunite the caucus, the parties is kind of fracturing. There seems to be some divides, you know, it's con- it's conservative politics. You always have it in conservative politics. There's different groups. People are very principled and they're not always willing to bend their views for somebody else's to compromise and make it work. So they're looking for someone that can unite the party and win ahead of a general election coming up against Rachel Notley and the NDP. Yeah, I think you raise an important point. And and one of the things I felt Jason Kenney was always too quick to do, and there was probably a strategic element there, is say that the only criticism about him was really about the COVID handling. He had said that anyone who was against him was against him because they didn't like lockdowns, they didn't like vaccine mandates. He he tried to really do his own version of the fringe minority thing to some extent. And what you just mentioned there, a range of issues that people had with the Kenny government, even pre-COVID or in the very early days of COVID. And yeah, the fair deal. I mean, obviously it hasn't been top of mind for a lot of Albertans because of pandemic-related stuff, but the equalization referendum was really, I I think for a lot of people, just the beginning of a bigger discussion they want to have about independence that really wasn't happening. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, There was a lot of unhappiness with the COVID-19 pandemic policies, as you mentioned, but there was also a lot of resentment for other issues. That being said, I don't know if COVID hadn't happened, if Kenny still would have had the Mm -hmm. same leadership as your results that he had. And, you know, maybe his energy could have been spent more on some of these issues. Obviously, COVID-19 was overwhelming for the government and it seemed like sort of all hands on deck to address this issue. And Kenny, of course, was the person who came out and did the press conferences. I think he was in front of the cameras like three times a week. We didn't see that in every other province. Some premiers put 
put their, you know, health officer in front of the cameras. So it's kind of like you've just spent two years seeing Kenny in front of the camera delivering bad news repeatedly. And then we go on to this leadership review. But certainly now that we are looking for a new premier, there's other issues coming up that people had with the Kenny government. And another big thing I'm hearing a lot is just sort of a lack of communication. Albertans didn't really feel like the Kenny government was consulting with them or being clear and open with them about what they were doing on the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it really felt like a top-down approach that Albertans typically really don't appreciate. I don't know if we really see that same sentiment in Ontario. The politics are very different here. Um, so we're seeing some leadership candidates appeal to, you know, we need to communicate better. We need to kind of give the power back to the hands of the members and not have that top-down approach. So these are all issues that we're seeing flow out of the leadership race right now and things that people are talking about and discussing. Yeah, let's talk about some of the players here because you have a lot of former Kenny cabinet ministers, people like uh, Rajan Sani and Leela here and Travis Taves that have stepped forward. Rebecca Schultz, another one who just got a pretty, I'd say, significant endorsement in Ronna Ambrose coming aboard her campaign. And then you have that wild rose flank of, of Brian Jean and Danielle Smith. And you've got some other people. I mean, Todd Lowen, I, I don't think he's in that top tier right now. But to be fair, he, he's there and he's appealing to some of those same people. And I, I think it will be interesting to see which way this goes, even early on, as far as momentum and fundraising and all that. Because I would see, certainly from my perspective, and I could have my own little echo chamber here, I would say that there's a lot more momentum behind the Danielle Smiths and the Brian Jeans because of those COVID frustrations, because of those equalization referendum and broader Western alienation frustrations. But at the same time, if someone is happy with the Kenny government, there's a lot of appeal to people that were in that government, like Rebecca Schultz, like Travis Taves. You have it exactly right. So I'm seeing tons of support for Danielle Smith. I don't think anybody on any campaigns, maybe a couple people, but I've been here at the Calgary Stampede talking to everyone. Everyone seems to be pretty much on agreement. Smith is in the lead right now. She's the clear front runner. You know, the polling from last month showed Brian Jean was just just behind her, like a point behind her still within the margin of error. I'm not really hearing a lot of support for him at the stampede. I'm not hearing that people feel super confident in his campaign or believe that he's likely to become the next leader even though the polling, as I mentioned last month, showed him just just behind Smith. But I am hearing, you know, people think Smith is the clear front runner. And that's because she has done such a good job of appealing to those freedom loving Albertans who are so frustrated with what happened in their province over the last few years. And the thing that all politicians need to remember right now is a lot of people who are in the freedom movement are people that were never involved in politics before. But when they saw what was happening in their country during the COVID-19 pandemic, they thought, I need to get involved now. If there was ever a time to stand up for something, it's today. And so they've been organizing over the last two years. So this has mobilized a lot of Canadians who might not have been involved in politics before. You know, there's just massive email lists. Their organization is, is very excellent. It's one of the reasons that Kenny had to resign as premier following, you know, his poor leadership review results at just 51.4% of party support. So she's done a really good job of appealing to those people. She's been very clear. We're not going to do lockdowns again. If Ottawa pressures us, we're going to have to resist that pressure on vaccine mandates and lockdowns. And then, you know, she's been talking about an Alberta Sovereignty Act, which would mean the province wouldn't enforce federal laws that they didn't like or think were advantageous to Alberta. So she's been very clear at appealing to those you know, to those Albertans and even things on like nominations. Nominations are open during the leadership race. Some people think that shouldn't be the case. They think they should wait for the new leader to be chosen to open noms. And she said, you know, if the members in that area are unhappy, I would consider reopening nominations. And that is some of the more moderates a bit concerned because they think some of these ideas are a bit radical, like 
reopening nominations, what kind of legal issues could that cause, as well as, you know, an Alberta Sovereignty Act? Is it really something that's practical? Will it give us economic certainty? I think we'll see a lot of investment pull. But she's definitely pulling ahead right now because she's appealing to those people. And I think they've just organized so well and so efficiently over the last two years. The concerns I'm hearing with her campaign is whether or not she can win a general election. And I, and I don't have a lot of clear answers on that. I'm not hearing a lot of clear answers about that at this time. Just on that note, and I know you're a recent, a relatively recent Alberta transplant, but there was a lot of bad blood to Danielle Smith after the whole floor crossing debacle. And she's, I mean, had to answer to that time and time again. But have people forgiven that? Have they forgotten it? Or has the political discussion just changed so much that they're operating on a different wavelength now? The people that were against her, a lot of them came from that Wild Rose side, the right flank of the party. Have they just moved on from that entirely? I don't think anybody's forgotten about it. I think it's something that's always there in the back of people's minds. It's something that gets brought up very often. Um, it's just... I think she spent six years on the radio and I think a lot of people have forgiven her for it and they're ready to give her another chance. So that's one big part of it. As I mentioned, you know, there are still some people that hold on to it. People have pretty clear when you when you're speaking to people, it's pretty clear right away. They say, I'll never trust her again because of the floor crosser or they say, you know, what? we heard her on the radio for six years. We understand why that happened and where she was coming from. It's a different time now. So there's definitely a big wave of people that are ready to forgive her. They might not have forgotten that it's happened, but they understand why it happened. And I think that as we saw with Ralph Klein, who was one of Alberta's most popular premiers. If you have a leader, a political leader who's willing to say, you know, I made a mistake and explain to people what that mistake was mm -hmm. and why they made it, people are very quick to, to forgive them and move on from it. And I think that was, again, one of the criticisms with Kenny is people didn't feel like they got a clear answer from him or a clear owning of mistakes, just sort of a, well, you know, we did the best we could and and people just were not satisfied with his answer. So I do get the sentiment that people are ready to forgive her. You know, there's, of course, people that are not going to believe her or trust her again as a politician, but the sentiments definitely seem to be changing. Let's turn to some of the bigger picture stuff. Obviously, you're coming aboard, not just as a True North's next Alberta correspondent, but really, I think, as True North's first Alberta correspondent. We've had Alberta coverage. I know a lot of it has fallen on me, which is just what Albertans want, someone coming in from Ontario every time something happens to uh, report on it, even though I, I do have an Alberta sensibility, many have argued. But what is it that you think are the big issues on the Alberta agenda right now? Um, AHS. People are really unhappy with their health care and they're looking for someone who's saying we cannot have unelected public health officials making decisions for the province again. So they're looking for political leaders that are going to offer answers on that. Um, just, you know, just, to just to jump in there, do you think this is like a general concern that everyone in Canada is dealing with or do you think it's a, a, a particularly acute for Albertans? It's definitely a concern that conservatives, libertarians across Canada are feeling right now. Um, and I'm hearing it brought up in Alberta politics at the grassroots level at like local meetings all the time. It gets talked about all the times people are saying, you know, this is really a problem of how our public system is designed and a problem with AHS. So how can we redesign our public health system so that we don't have a situation like this again? And again, you know, candidates like Daniel Smith and Todd Lowen, they have specific solutions and they have ideas as to how to address mm -hmm. this so that we don't have public health orders that are just passed without, you know, public officials, elected officials being able to debate, debate them in the legislature and decide if they're actually something they'd like to proceed with. So I would say AHS is at the top of mind. Again, you know, freedom from Ottawa, some more famous fairman on equalization payments. Um, you know, people are really unhappy with the high taxes right now and the high cost of living. Government spending is, of course, an issue. Um, 
yeah, those are the big issues that I'm seeing come across the board right now that get kind of brought up everywhere that we're going. But affordability is, I think, top of mind for everybody in Canada. So we're seeing a lot of conversation around that as well. During the early part of the conservative leadership race, keeping in mind, you don't really have any candidates from the West. I know Pierre Polyev was born there, so he's tried to say that he's the Western candidate. Leslie Lewis did very well there in the last leadership race, so she's trying to say that that makes her a Western candidate. But but you have Ontarians and a Quebecer that are running in this race, and it really didn't seem like Alberta issues or Western issues were getting much discussion at all in the leadership race until, I'd say, the last week. Once they all want to go to Alberta and get their white hats for the Calgary Stampede, they start talking about, oh, I want to change equalization and all that. But uh, do you feel that there has been enough of a a push by the federal conservative leadership candidates to go after these Western issues? I think so. I think they've all done different things to sort of try to appeal to the West. The question is whether they really mean it and if we'll see action on that once they're elected. I think, you know, everyone knows, like even Patrick Brown, very early into his campaign when Michelle Rumpel-Garner was still his campaign chair, he released like a whole platform on how he would deal with issues in the West. We saw something similar from Jean Charest, I believe it was just early last week. So, you know, they are coming out with proposals that specifically address Western issues. It's just the question of how much they really mean it and how much they're going to advocate for these issues once they're in elected office. And, you know, hold the highest office of the land. So I think that's sort of a question everyone is wondering, you know, trustability. But, you know, Pierre Polyev is incredibly popular out here. He's pulled massive crowds to his rallies in Edmonton. There was 4,000 people at his at his rally, you know, a couple months ago. So he's just pulling massive crowds all across Canada. And we're definitely seeing like a ton of support for him here. So, you know, maybe he hasn't lived in Calgary anytime soon, but I think people still like to see him a little bit as, as one of their own. Drew North, Alberta correspondent, Rachel Emanuel. Rachel, thanks for coming on and and welcome again to the team. Great to be working with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. One thing I have got to say, just talking about those Alberta issues and the Alberta agenda, it was interesting that energy didn't come up. And I I think a part of that is because in an Alberta conservative context, and even like a Canadian conservative party context, it's just assumed that you're pro-energy. Like everyone in the race is pro-energy. That's like one of the most uncontroversial things you can do in the context of being a Canadian conservative. It's, I mean, it shouldn't be controversial. I guess if you're from Quebec, it might be a bit challenging. And that's what Jean Charest has been criticized for, but all of them are. So it's interesting that it doesn't actually need to be an issue in Alberta politics. But I did want to share an interview, and this one is actually a couple of months old now, but we've been waiting for the issues to arise to make it timely. I sat down at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference with Gwyn Morgan, who is a legend in Canadian industry and also the Canadian oil and gas sector in particular. He was the man who built and created and made what it was, and Canna, which has now ceased to be in a quite tragic turn of events, a Canadian company. It's now domiciled in the U.S. and goes by the name Ovintiv, which was something we actually spoke to Gwyn Morgan about back when that happened a couple of years ago now. But this was my conversation in Ottawa with Gwyn Morgan. Uh, Gwyn, good to see you in person. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. We've heard a little bit in the leadership race about the oil and gas sector in Canada, about energy policy. Would you say, as someone who's worked for years in this sector, that the issues connected to it are, are getting enough attention lately? Well, I think they're getting more attention than ever because you start with the fossil fuel thing itself. What the reality is, the world has now realized that the fossil fuels are fundamental to both their very economic and even their physical survival, and we we happen to have a. We've let our we, 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 the country that's got the third largest reserves of the world has left uh, is, is sort of turned itself off 
leaving uh, President Putin and Russia to control the oil supply. And this is now become, and so now we have a situation where there are actually energy crises, fossil fuel crises, and they're going to keep on going, and they're going to affect not only developed world, but the undeveloped world. So this is the legacy of the Trudeau government's anti-oil and gas policy for a country that has the third largest reserves in the world. We're seeing, especially in Europe right now, countries like Germany and Hungary that have their energy sectors entirely dependent or, or significantly dependent on, on Russia particularly. When you were you know, actively working in the oil and gas sector, was this a part of your pitch to countries that you, you have to be very focused on and very aware of the problems of, of becoming reliant on, on Russian oil and other dictatorship oil? Well, you know, I lived, uh, my, my career was in what I would call the golden years for the industry, where we didn't have an anti-industry government. Mm. Uh, you know, you, di you didn't need to put an aggressive sales no, pitch on to get them to buy Canadian oil, yeah. What we were doing was providing jobs and, and the principal source of revenue for the country, both domestically and, in, and, and exports. And our, we were a growing business and we were... Uh, thriving uh, economy because of that so we didn't have to sell it to people and people needed they needed energy but you know the interesting thing is that um, they, most people don't realize that in the last 10 years um, well I guess the but last 10 years prior just prior to this pandemic uh, the, the oil uh, demand had reached our 75 million barrels a day then we had uh, the pandemic, of course, but we also had uh, these these various years of the of these uh, annual uh, shindigs, or people flew in by jet planes to talk about you know saving the world from fossil fuel emissions, <laughs> and uh, and we went so we went from there to to um, a situation where now the demand is a hundred million barrels a day all during the COP26 stuff and everything else. And the forecasts now by the IEA are going to 110. And we're having trouble getting 100. So right now we're in a fossil fuel, uh, huge fossil fuel problem. And it's and then of course, as you say, Andrew, the, the other problem in Europe is, is the natural gas issue. I mean, here's Germany with nuclear power and you know, people are talking to come back to nuclear power mm -hmm. right now, shutting down all the plants so they could they could get their energy from from uh, windmills and power and and, uh, and solar panels. And that doesn't work very well. So now they're dependent on Russia. So we have the oil industry, gas industry, in Europe, or gas business, gas consumers dependent on Russia, and we have the world uh, dependent on oil, uh, Russia for oil. And this is the legacy of the of the movement to get off fossil fuels. Yeah, and I think that's the big lie in all of this, is that when people talk about easing our reliance on oil, all they're really doing is easing their reliance on domestic oil production because the need itself has not been replaced. And, and this is such a, a fundamental thing. I'm not an expert in it by any stretch, but I see it, that they're not doing anything because that magical alternative energy source that's going to replicate the energy we need at the cost that we need doesn't exist yet. It does not exist. You know, I'm an engineer, of course, and, and I always say that politicians can't chain physics. <laughs> <laughs> they may think they can, some of them. The physics of how much energy you can get out of fossil fuels 
or out of uh, wind and solar when it's minus 20 degrees in Canada with no sun in the winter and you're trying to heat your home, good luck. Uh, so it's, it's, all, it's, it's all so obvious, you know, the thing that always struck me is how obvious these things are. 84% of the current uh, energy supply and demand in the world is supplied by fossil fuels. There isn't anything else. Nuclear power will come, but even that can't, that can't put that in cars and airplanes. So it's just a, uh, I don't know how to put it, it's become like a religion, a myth. And people don't think through the obvious holes in that myth. Do you feel like the battle has been lost on this already and that even if you were to get a pro-energy conservative government in that the culture is moving so much against it that you can't turn back or do you feel that people will have a reckoning with this at some point? Oh, I don't think it's, it, 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 it's gone beyond politics now. When people can't heat their homes, they can't drive their cars, when there's people throughout the world without fertilizer for their, for their farms, people are starving. Uh, we don't have to talk about the, 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 the why we need fossil fuels. There's never been a, a bigger lesson than right now at this moment. Gwen Morgan, thank you. My thanks again to Gwen Morgan for sitting down with me at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference. And I'll certainly be at that conference next year, but they have another one coming up in September in Red Deer that I hope to be at as well. They're doing some great stuff. Jamil Giovanni has now taken the reins and they are great friends of True North. That does it for us for today. We will be back in a couple days time with the next part of our conservative leadership series. Next up is my interview with Scott Aitchison. You won't want to miss that coming down the way in just two days time. In the meantime, though, hope you all have a wonderful rest of the day and rest of the week. Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.